Welcome to the Nurse Becoming Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Guarneri from the Resume Rx, and this is the podcast that's dedicated to empowering and encouraging nurses along your path of professional and self-discovery. As a nurse practitioner, mom, and business owner, I'm on a mission to help you figure out how to leave your lasting impact on the world, all while bravely and fearlessly growing along the way. Join me for honest conversations and inspiring stories about personal and professional growth all through the lens of nursing. Well, hey there. Welcome back to the Nurse Becoming podcast. It's your host, Amanda Guarneri. Thank you so much for taking this time to listen in today. I am really excited about today's episode. I am featuring a special guest who has been a familiar voice on the show, Liz Rohr from Real World NP. She is an amazing mentor and educator for new nurse practitioners. She and I are kindred spirits and are both really, really passionate about the success of nurse practitioners, particularly those who are new and transitioning to practice. So the title of today's episode is I Hate My NP Job, Now What? Which is kind of a funny title, like it makes me chuckle a little bit. It's a little bit tongue in cheek, But that said, it is the absolute reality for a lot of nurse practitioners. And chances are, if you clicked in to listen to this episode, you either feel that exact same way or you want to make sure that you don't get to that point. You want to prevent yourself from landing in a job that you hate or having your current job turn into one that you hate. And we have some good action steps in this week's episode to help you with that, because we don't want that for you either. And, you know, the the answer to the question of now what is not always to leave your job and find a new one. There are certainly things that you can do to make your current job better, especially if you're picking up on things that you are not happy with. So that's what we're really diving into in this episode. It's not how to find another job. It's not how to necessarily prevent yourself like from finding that type of job. It's not about red flags before you get the job. It's about when you're in the job, how do you make it better if it's not exactly what you were hoping for? So I really hope that this is a gem of an episode for you. So we will get right into the interview with Liz. Hello, Liz. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're kind of a a recurring like MVP VIP <laughs> on the show. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so today we have a fun topic. So the title of today's episode is I Hate My NP Job, Now What? And so I'm hoping that you and I can really chat about basically what can we do if we're in a job that we don't like? in order to make it better, as opposed to jumping ship and finding a new job. You know, that may eventually be what we end up needing to do. But Mm. before we get to that point, like, we need to make an effort to make things better, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in last week's episode, I presented the um, kind of like the public health prevention framework you know, primary prevention, secondary prevention, tertiary prevention. And I related that to your job search and, you know, avoiding being in a job that you don't like. So primary prevention being the things that we can do to avoid even landing in a job that we don't like. 
Secondary prevention being when we identify that we don't really love the job, what we can we do to like halt that progression, which is what we're going to talk about today. And then tertiary prevention, which is essentially when you're past that point of no return, how to plan your exit and jump ship, meaning how to find another job. So on last week's episode, I really deconstructed primary prevention and tertiary prevention in this metaphor, but I wanted to leave the secondary prevention part for us to deconstruct today. So essentially, if you've identified that you don't like your nurse practitioner job, how can you take some steps to prevent it from getting worse? What can you do about it because I feel like a lot of people get to the point where they're not happy with something and feel like, oh, well, I guess I got to find a new job now. But I think over the years, you and I both have kind of seen and experienced ways that we can actually improve the situation that we're in, you know, currently, as opposed to just jumping to that point of looking for a new job. Do you agree with that? Oh, 100%. And um, I have to apologize, my radiator, it's quite cold today, and it's a little bit noisy. So yeah, I mean, I think to start, like, I, number one, I'm so glad to hear that framing. Because I think that one of the core problems, the core reasons I think that this happens, there's a number of reasons in my perspective. But like, one is that I think sometimes nurse practitioners are so ambitious, go-getters, DIYers, um, and tenacious, that they are like, coming in with the mindset of like, I can handle anything for a year, take mm-hmm. whatever I need to, I can hack it, which you can. And I give mad props for that, right? Like they can, and we all can, right? But like, do we deserve that, right? And I think tying it into prevention and like, I sometimes feel like I need to convince new nurse practitioners of like, no, you're actually worth a good job. You are worthy of a good job and you would never sacrifice prevention, for your patients, right? So like, let's tie back to ourselves, right? Because ultimately this is, if you can't convince yourself that you're worth that, your patient care is worth that. And you're not getting burnt out after months to years. That's that's what we're talking about here. Because if you're burnt out, you can't take care of your patients, right? So I just want to start by saying that. And then the second thing I think is really comes down to information from my understanding, right? So I think that part of it is that people come in with that mindset, but then they also don't necessarily know they don't necessarily know all the parts, right? Like, so I feel like for me, I realized what I needed in a job and what I didn't want in a job after I was working. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really understand how I fit into the healthcare system. And I didn't understand how the clinic worked. And when I work with mentees one-on-one, I think those are the conversations that I'm having is like, what is your place here? What is your role? What are the roles of the people around you? What are the supports that are expected in a community health center? Like, so social work, uh, like, what do they do? Like, community health workers, health benefits, like your supervisor. And like, I I talked about this actually on a live that I did yesterday, um, talking about a difficult case is like, there are issues that happen and you don't necessarily know where the line ends with you and where it goes to somebody else. Like, what is the system that you're operating in, right? So if there's a if there's a problem with a patient without access to insurance and that's impeding your care and you're on the phone for seven hours trying to figure out this problem, it's like, no, 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 that's a systemic problem with your clinic that you need to bring to the attention of your supervisor who's likely the chief medical officer or the operations director. And like, this is how this whole system fits together. And then I think the third thing that really comes into mind for me is safety. Like, I think that... I think that there's a line there. So I think that, and I talk about this a lot with my mentees who are in frustrating positions and they're thinking about leaving their jobs because they're so frustrated. So like my clinic that I'm in right now 
is not perfect, right? No clinics are not, nothing is perfect. However, I understand how I fit in the system. I understand the supports that I need and I deserve. And I also understand the jobs of the other people. And when I bring systemic problems, I try to give examples to make it more clear, but I guess as an example for a patient who doesn't have insurance. So I guess to bring in this case I was talking about, I was talking about a case of a patient who was supposed to be discharged to a skilled nursing facility for two weeks for IV antibiotics uh, and wound care that was surgically debrided twice in the hospital has complicated diabetes and pneumonia that they're recovering from, right? Complicated. And the patient arrived in the clinic because they don't have insurance and they did not go get IV antibiotics. They didn't do the plan of care they were supposed to, right? And that's like, it's complicated medically, but it's complicated systemically, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the highlights of that case is like talking about how does this fit in like financial benefits, social work, all that stuff. And like bringing these issues that they come up over and over and over and over again to your supervisor to help with that. But I think it's also the safety part that I want to bring in here is like, I can trust at my current clinic, despite there being issues, when I bring things to their attention, they are listening to me, they're responding to me, and they're respecting me. And like, they don't treat me like a cog in a wheel. I don't even know what a cog is. (laughs) I'm not like some disposable person, right? They value me. And we're all working together towards a mission. Whereas the other scenario that I hear a lot is that people are still continuously disrespected despite bringing their thoughts and feelings and concerns in a very constructive way. They're not complaining, right? They're just highlighting, hey, there's a systems issue in this clinic that's not working well. And like, it's not heard, right? And, or it keeps happening over and over and over and over again, right? So I think that that's like the major difference for, I have one person, I have a couple of people in mind actually that I'm thinking about that have, have been thinking about leaving their job. And it's because, I don't know, for me, the hopefulness is gone. The hope is gone when you're just like, you're just, yeah, it's just, you don't feel like you're supported, which creates safety issues. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's important to, you know, a point that you brought up is, you know, people who feel disrespected after voicing their concerns. And I think that piece is really important because I think that we can have a lot of internal mind chatter that maybe never comes out of our mouth or never comes, you know, out of our fingertips into an email. And we kind of assume that our leadership or our management can read our mind about the problems. And that's not the case. And we can end up having this kind of one-sided situation that breeds resentment and that we can complain about either to our family, our friends, our colleagues, but it's never given the opportunity to be improved upon. So I think that it's so important to, you know, before you make that decision that you're not supported, you know, to make sure that you're taking that personal responsibility to be advocating for yourself and to be raising your hand and saying, hey, there's a problem here and this is something that needs to be addressed because you can't hold something against someone, in this case, the someone being management or leadership, for something that they're not aware of or they haven't heard your suggestions for improvement. And, you know, it comes kind of down to that worthiness thing again, like you're worthy of being able to raise your hand and bringing up and identifying a problem, whether it's a systemic problem or a relationship's problem, you know, a dynamic problem inside your clinic or your workplace. Yeah. And I think it takes a lot of boldness and confidence. And I think that's one of the levels of becoming a nurse practitioner that is kind of the hidden one that I don't think that people are, they're kind of like sideswiped by in a little way, in a little bit, like, and they, they're becoming a clinician, but then there's all these other aspects of like, you have to, you are your own champion. You are your own cheerleader. And like you, 
just you need to you need to do that and it's and if you can't do it for yourself you're doing it for the good of the patients and you're doing it for the good of the clinic right and i think that you bring up such a good point about writing an email and communicating and bringing solutions and not just complaints right I mean, I think managers in general appreciate that kind of like perspective, but I think that's extra important. And I'm glad that you brought up the point about writing things down and writing emails and like coming up with suggestions. Cause I think management in general, like part of it is like seeing that perspective of like what it's like on the other side, which is hard to do when you're a brand new grad and you don't fully understand the clinic workings together and, and the roles of the management and leadership and all that stuff, but like recognizing solutions. I, again, I I look at things in algorithms, I guess the algorithm being like number one, identifying what the issue is, right. And what are the current supports that you have? Right. And is this a patient diagnosis, clinical management problem, or is this something else? Right. Because I think that's usually where the struggle comes from is not the actual clinical management. It's the other stuff. Right. And it's how the clinic is working together, what the supports are, what the relationships are between, and if you're getting enough support from a mentor. So I think that there's like, is it a clinical problem or a non-clinical problem? And then like, what supports do you have? Who can you go to? Do you have community health workers, social workers, that kind of stuff? And then can you bring this to the attention of the appropriate person, right? So your supervisor, et cetera, et cetera. And then if you're not feeling heard, number one, did you write it down? Did you suggest a solution, right? Is there documentation? Have you have you mentioned it more than one time in passing, right? Because sometimes, I mean, all, almost always change takes forever and it takes a lot of voices sometimes. But I think the other part in terms of the algorithm of choice of, of actions for me is like that the next step for me is like, okay, if I'm not feeling heard, I'm going to collaborate with my colleague providers, right? And so we can, as a, com- as a community, talk about what are the things we're struggling with? Is this just me? Is this everybody? Is this a systemic issue? Is this something that we can use a collective voice to talk about? And I think just like further articulating and, and trying to learn about what your role is, because I think one of the dangerous paths is that as new nurse practitioners, as caregivers, we're very apt to fix the things, fix all the things. And I know, like, I don't talk a ton about my clinics that I worked with before that I work with now, just out of respect of, of privacy and stuff. But I, I think that I have been in situations where I felt like I've misunderstood what my role is because I'm so committed to change and I'm so committed to elevating the experience of the patients, the providers of the clinic. I would want to work with the team. I want to work with an amazing workplace. I want things to be beautiful. Right. And like, it's hard sometimes when it's not your job. And I think that that's important to remember what's your job and what's not. And I think that that's really hard for new mentees that I work with. So that's a little bit of a sounding board is like learning what the resources are, learning what those processes are to fix, quote unquote, fix things or make improvements. And then knowing when to stop because it's just like a fast path to burnout. Speaking from personal experience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's a really great point about, you know, knowing what your job is. And because I think something that I've seen a lot among new graduates or, you know, junior clinicians, if we want to call them, is, you know, coming out of school very fresh and bright eyed and eager and optimistic and idealistic about the impact that we can make in our roles. And then quickly realizing the reality of all the different barriers and struggles of our patients, of, you know, the healthcare system as a whole. And, not being able to see and realize your impact. Um, And I think that that can really, you know, when that expectation and the reality are in a mismatch, that can really affect how 
impactful you feel in your role. And I I know that's something that I've experienced working in the emergency department, something that I, when I realized that I was kind of on that fast path to burnout was when I was going to work and, and doing the literal job of recognizing and, you know, triaging and treating life threatening, imminent issues and not feeling like I was doing enough in mm-hmm. in my job. And, and when I realized that that was a big kind of like slap in the face or, or yeah. awakening call or whatever you want to call it. And I think that that can lead to that kind of like professional dissatisfaction that yeah. leads us to think that we need a new job. Uh, yeah. But the question is, you know, how much of that is within our control by either reframing our expectations, reframing our mindset, or, you know, putting effort towards improving something that's affecting that whole cascade. Yeah, no, and a hundred percent. And I, and I, and I think it brings up another thing for me is that like, I think, I think one thing that I see is like, is the first thing potentially that I hear from people is that like first inaction step, that kind of like dissatisfaction, but not really not inaction. I don't, I don't mean that in like a unkind way, but like in a, in a way that people don't recognize that, oh, like this is, this is what we need to do when we recognize these issues, these systemic issues, we need to talk about them. So I think that there's one issue there. And I think another potential issue though, is safety again, going back to safety. Like, so I guess three, three things, I guess I love things in threes. That's the first one. The second one is like recognizing what is your scope and what is not your scope and making sure you're not exceeding that. And that's really like a a kind of a vague thing. I like to give examples, but yeah, I guess in terms of like all of the moving parts of the person's life outside of the practice of medicine, because really we are clinicians and that's really what we are called to do and really should stay in there. But we get sucked into the systemic problems of the clinic and the healthcare system and the world because we care so much. Right. So like, I think that's the second potential danger. And then the third potential one is like, you're doing all the things communicating, sending emails, giving suggestions, getting your collaborators involved, working towards a shared mission, but then you're not being heard or you're being put into unsafe situations. So I think that that's like another thing I really want to impart on new grads is that I see people practicing in unsafe situations and like discerning what's safe and what's not like you're actually, this is actually unsafe because you're given 40 patients a day after two weeks of orientation and you're being asked to prescribe things that are dangerous and, you know, like that kind of stuff. So I think that those are the potential pitfalls. And I think for me, that is one of the things that has spelled for me when it's time to go, when you've done all the things you've asked for the support, you're doing your own kind of self-care to prevent burnout and to keep that. And I loved how you said, like how everyone graduate with this idealism. And I think that I think that that's what I'm kind of realizing for me is that like, and I think the reason we both do this, right, is because we're trying to keep that kind of like magic alive. I don't know, just the desire for impact because it can get really squashed sometimes. But yeah, I think it's just like, what are the things we can do to intervene in our own jobs so that we can stay connected with that and don't get hopeless? Don't let hope get impacted. Yeah, for sure. I think it's important to like talk a little bit more about the safety thing because you and I have both you know, talked about red flags that could indicate that potential jobs are unsafe during the process. But the reality is that a lot of people don't realize that they're in those situations until they're in the job. Mm -hmm. What do you think is like a good first step for someone who's 
internally identified that they're working in an unsafe environment, either because they're being asked to see too many patients or practice outside of their scope or prescribe medications that they're not comfortable with, but it's all part of the expectation of the job. Do you think that there's any chance to salvage that? Or is that one of those, like the writing on the wall, the writings on the wall situations? It's so hard to say. And I think I can only speak from personal experience and what I've observed from other people. So like I, data is really important to me. So this is a little anecdotal, right? But like, this is very like hunch based, but I think for me and my experience and what I've seen from other people is that it comes down to when you reach out to your supervisors and your management and your system, what is the response, right? Because a safe leader will say, yes, I completely understand. Like if you reach out and you're like, listen, I'm overwhelmed. And I think that's one of the things that that pains me is that there's so much imposter syndrome and so much fear and so much aloneness where they don't realize that every single person has these feelings and they don't know what's normal and what's not. And so like they're questioning themselves of like, is this unsafe? Is this abnormal? Or is it just me that I'm not competent enough? You know, so I think part of it is reaching out to somebody else outside of the organization, right? But then also within the organization, communicating, like, cause if part of it might be, for example, like, so if say you're joining a physician practice, who's never worked, never worked with an NP before, they don't necessarily know what you need, right? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Right. And so if some, if they give you an assignment, here's the expectations and you're like, oh gosh, is this normal? Is this not normal? I feel really overwhelmed. If you reach out to them and you're like, listen, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed here. I don't know if this is normal. Can we have some mentoring meetings? Like that's what I recommend to everybody is like have a weekly mentoring meeting, see how things are going. And like, hopefully a, a supportive environment will encourage you to, to do something. And right. And we all have to work within the confines of the healthcare system and keeping a business open, the doors open, bringing in revenue. Right. And that's the way we get revenue is because we see patients. Right. But at the same time, it's about investment in your people. Like it's more expensive to invest in brand new providers that get burnt out than it is to invest in somebody at the beginning, support them well so that they stay for the long term, Right. So yeah, I think for me, it's come down a lot to the responsiveness of the organization and the supervisor. Yeah, definitely. And I think that just reemphasizes the point that you have to say something. If you are seeing X number of patients a day after your orientation, and and even though it's what everyone else in the practice yep. is seeing, but it's not safe or comfortable for you, it's so easy to stay silent because you just feel like you're not living up to the expectation because that's what you've been told you should be doing right. or you're everybody like else to, is doing. Yeah. Or you've been, or you're like, you're lucky to get this job in the first place and it took you forever to find it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if you speak up, they're going to be like, well, you're not a good fit here. See you later. Right. And I definitely understand that. I definitely understand that fear, but like ultimately real talk, if you get burnt out, you will not be in this profession. I'm sorry. Like I nearly left become being an NP. I nearly left right? After three years, when I finally got to the place of like, I know what I'm doing, I almost left, you know? Yeah. So like, that's, I don't know. I, I'm getting a little amped up because I, <laughs> I just, this is so like near and dear to me. And it pains me so much um, to see that because it's like, I don't know. I think people just go in and like, they're, they're so big hearted and it just is, it's sad. It's yeah. sad to see. Yeah. 
Hey friend, if you are a nurse practitioner or even a future NP, you might be wondering what type of specialty you should work in. And this is a question I get asked a lot because we're really only exposed to a few specialties during NP school. So I interviewed some amazing specialty NPs for our private podcast series called NP Specialty Takeovers. You can listen to all the episodes by heading to nptakeovers.com. And once you enter your email address, you will get free access to the series, which you can actually just upload in your podcast app so that you can binge all the episodes. It's a private podcast feed. It's totally free. And chances are we have an episode about that one specialty you're super curious about. So go ahead to nptakeovers.com and get free access to the specialty podcast series today. Well, let's kind of switch gears to another reason that people may feel that the job isn't right for them. So we talked a little bit about, you know, professional impact. We talked about safety and and kind of productivity, that type of thing. I want to talk a little bit about interpersonal office mm-hmm. issues. Mm-hmm. I think that that <laughs> is, I think that can be a huge reason why people leave and people don't stay, whether it's conflict with coworkers, conflict with leadership or management. And yeah, I've seen that happen. I've felt that before myself or kind of been on the periphery of that. And so I'd love to get your thoughts of whether that's something you've experienced either yourself or with mentees or people that you've worked with and and your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I think it makes a huge difference. I think for me, having solid coworkers has been so impactful for me. All the jobs I've basically ever had have had a great team. I mean, with some caveats for sure, but I definitely, when I work with one mentees one-on-one, I think that that is a huge contributing factor to them being really unhappy because it's like a stuffy, sterile kind of environment where Mm. the people, it's not a team and they don't really work together and they don't feel comfortable asking questions. They don't feel comfortable going to other providers. And I know for me, like I had a challenging experience when I was a new grad where I was assigned a medical assistant and she did not like me. And, and I was also stepping into this role of like, I'm not your supervisor, but I'm kind of supervising you. And you're like, we are a team. Like you are the medical assistant that I work with. You're assigned to me and I work full time. You know, that was really painful. I think again, for me, I had, I, I, I think it, I think it, what's coming to mind for me is like the more issues, the more unhappy you're going to be versus the more things that you have supporting you, the more likely you are to stay. Right. So even though I had that challenging situation with the medical assistant, I spoke up with my office manager and my supervisor, and I had a solid colleague team. Right. And so despite that being painful, anyway, I I try not to get into too much of that personal stuff, but that took a long time to be get resolved. But I think that I was still hopeful because I was still able to do my job. I was still able to be supported by my colleagues and I was still supported by my supervisor, despite there being some issues with the staff, but I, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know, I guess I see it as a protective factor for relating it back to like health outcomes. It's like a protective factor in terms of job satisfaction, but I don't know. I just, I don't really know in terms of the change. I don't know what your thoughts are about that because I think that I hear that people are really unhappy with that and that's a contributing factor why they want to leave. But like, 
I don't know. I guess I feel conflicted about it. All I can see that it is a thing, but I don't know if there's anything to do to be done about it. I, I mean, you know, I've talked a number of times about shadowing um, when you're interviewing somewhere. And I think that potentially can be helpful. You can feel the room, you can feel the vibe. So Definitely. I was thinking about a job uh, before I accepted this one. This is my second job as an NP. And I, w- I sat in the, in the charting room and I got the vibes. Like the vibes were very disillusioned is not the word, but it's, it was along those lines. And I was like, Ooh, the morale is pretty low here. I don't know if I'm, if I'm going to want to work here. The people seem cool, but the morale is super low. Yeah. I, I totally agree that one of the best ways to get a feel for that before you even accept a job is to ask for a shadow shift, a shadow hour, a shadow, anything, because yeah, you can, you can be a fly on the wall. You can read the room and you can really get a sense of the vibe and the morale sure, plenty of times you'll enter a job and either someone new comes in who you don't get along with, or there's some sort of personality conflict that you're either involved with or on the periphery of. I think this can happen a lot with like all female staff. No, but Um, even like, I'm just thinking about like clinicians that I'm like, Ooh, I do not agree with your practice management. That is unsafe and irresponsible. I mean, not to be rude, but I, I guess I'm just a bold person now that I'm going to yeah. say that, but like, yeah, like I think it's, I think, yeah, I'm sorry. I interrupt you. Continue. No, no. I was just going to say that, you know, to some extent too, I think that these type of issues, if you are involved with this conflict or you have this perception of this conflict, mm-hmm. you first need to it's figure absolutely. out, right, exactly. <laughs> you need to figure out whether it is an actual conflict or if you are projecting your yes. perception. Right. Like that's a huge mindset lesson that I think is important to remember that, you know, we put everything through our own filter, our own, you know, perception filter where we can observe something and we make it mean something. And that's all based on our own personal experiences. And all those feelings are 100% valid. Right. But I think it is important to check in with yourself. And, and really try to be as objective as possible to parse out what is real and what, you know, I don't, when I explain this, it sometimes feels like I'm invalidating someone's feelings. And I, I always like to be really careful about that, Mm -hmm. but, you know, basically I want to make sure that you are understanding how much your perception filter is, is affecting the situation and, and whether or not a shift in your thought and a shift in your belief about the scenario could actually change yeah. the situation. Yeah. And I think, I think, a, I think a couple of things I wanted to add about that. So one is that I'm guilty of, I have a lot of empathy and intuition and I rely on that heavily sometimes. Um, cause I'm usually right. Um, <laughs> I say that in jest. I, I recognize that I'm not always right. Um, but I do a lot of assuming, especially cause I have a team now. And I actually had an explicit conversation with my, with my assistant yesterday, just being very forthcoming. And I'm like, you know what, I'm, I'm noticing that I'm assuming that you feel frustrated and, and I'm assuming it's because of this, but I'm labeling it that I am assuming. And like Mr. Rogers has something that he says, like, no one knows what you're thinking unless you tell them. Right. And I think that if we're empathic people and intuitive people, I think that we can jump to conclusions. Right. And to go back to that example of this medical assistant that I work with, I guess I'll just, I guess I'll just share without too many details, but this person was older than me. And I don't know if that was a factor, but she was objectively unkind to me objectively, like not, not, I'm assuming like this is objectively unkind. I asked other people, did this happen? What did you observe? Like I got factual information. And then I specifically 
went aside with her. And this was really hard for me. Like I did not have a ton of leadership skill when I first started working as an NP. And I was like, listen, like, I would love to talk with you. I feel like things are not working between us. And I feel frustrated because sometimes when I ask you to do something, whatever, and I set very clear expectations about like, you know what, phone notes, as I've been advised, my, my direct medical assistant that I work with, when I send them phone notes in the computer system, need to be um, completed within three days. And I noticed I looked at your desktop and there were notes from weeks ago. And that I, I can't, we can't do that. So it was a, it was a combination of like object, recognizing what was objective, being out loud about like what I was thinking and feeling and not making assumptions on her part and understanding the situation from her perspective. And then I also reached out to, to the um, office manager and my supervisor and like the office manager was really apologetic. I was like, I, I, I see that this is happening. I'm going to help you. I'm going to drink. I'm actually her direct supervisor and we're in a pinch right now. We don't have enough staff. And I will do my best to rearrange things so that maybe a different relationship will be better for you guys. But that's the best we can do right now, you know, but at least, yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's really hard. I think, I think the biggest thing, like you're saying though, is like not assuming things and just being objective. And I think that I try to be as drama free and low drama as possible. And just like recognizing that, like I can get enraptured in those feelings. And you know what? That has nothing to do with me. Like seriously, every Every single thing that that person had a problem with me, it's everything to do with her and has nothing to do with me. Yeah. Right. And I talk about this with patients all the time too, is that like, I had one visit where a guy was like, I drive an hour to see you and I will follow you to any clinic that you go to because he loves me so much. Right. And the next patient comes into the room and leaves screaming that I'm neglecting her child. And that has everything to do with them because I'm the same person, right? <laughs> I'm giving the same care and I'm the same person with everybody, you know? So I think that there is a lot of this role. This I think this ties so much into this other layer of role transition that we don't really see in school. Like in school, we're talking all about clinical stuff, which is hyper important, but so is all of this other stuff, right? Yeah. What training do we have in that? Unless we have other careers that we're coming from, right? I did not, I am still learning leadership skills Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and communication skills, you know? <laughs> exactly. And I think those, those skill sets are, you know, essential for our role for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, I think it's also important to point out you and I we'll both be very vocal about this, how important it is to have people on your team. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I don't mean like people who work for you. I mean, like your group of people, like your NP besties, you know, whether they're people that you went to school with or people you've met on the internet or a formal group that you participate in, or, you know, um, a mentoring relationship, you know, having, someone having some sort of network outside of your work bubble, I think is so important because that's when you can speak freely. That's when you can get opinions and insight about what you're going through, which can do two things. It can give you constructive ways to improve or, you know, sometimes it's just enough to have your experience validated Yeah, and know that you're not the only one going through it. And I feel like sometimes being an NP can be kind of isolating. There's not usually a ton of NP teamwork inside the work environment, unless you're in a really large practice. So I I feel like Depends actually, because like I've been working in pretty small practices and I think, I think it just depends on the culture and the dynamic, you know, like the people who are there, 
I mean, I love community health because I think that there's like a particular type of personality that's drawn to it. And it doesn't necessarily mean anything, right? Like there are people I don't jive with, right. That are in community health too. But yeah, no, I, I think, I think one of the things that I'm kind of like realizing as I'm, as I, cause I'm, I, as I've said many times, I'm obsessed with this transition of practice and supporting new MPs because we have this passion and like medicine is hard enough without all the extra baggage that happens in the first couple of years of practice in terms of the drama, in terms of the role transition, in terms of the, like the, the clinical knowledge building, like that's heavy stuff, you know? So like, I think it's like, whatever we can do to protect ourselves and protect that deep desire to make those changes in the world, like community support and knowledge. And, you know, I, I think all of that stuff is, is I think just becoming more and more clear to me, like how, how important it is. And like, I think that you and I recognize that and especially being experienced clinicians and being in this work all the time. But I think that people don't always see that until like, I think for me, I didn't recognize so many things until it was like, quote unquote, too late. Right. I was already in the trenches. I was already exhausted. I was already overwhelmed. I was already starting to burn out. Yeah. And I already was feeling alone. Like I I didn't feel as alone because I had a really solid co-working co-workers at my first job who also were pretty new, but that community, you know, is insulating. Right. Yeah. Like what are the things that can help protect you? Cause like in any, any workplace, regardless if you're an NP or not, like what are the criteria for job satisfaction? Right. So, and in terms of like the question of like when to leave, I guess I'm thinking about one person in particular has most of those things. She doesn't have the coworkers that are really strong team. Her supervisor is not really that responsive. So she's kind of on the cusp of like, should I leave or not? You know? And it's really like, what is, what is the criteria for satisfaction for you? Like, is that enough for you? Yeah. Right. Cause it's not really unsafe at this point. She doesn't feel like it's unsafe. We've discussed cases and it's not unsafe, but is, is she fulfilled? Is she happy? She's yeah. not sure. Yeah. And that, that formula is different for everybody, yes. right? Like exactly. there yeah. definitely is not a prescription for that, yes. you know, 100%. which is, you know, why you can't go to one of these like 20,000 people Facebook groups and say, I hate my job because of X, Y, Z. What should I, what should I do? You know, like that, you're not yeah. going to be on because everyone's yeah. going to say run in capital letters with 12 exclamation yes. points, first of all, but, yes. um, 100%. but yeah, I think, I think it comes down to your values and what's important to you, totally. right? Is it, is it work-life, um, work-life balance? Is it our flexibility? Is it the type of patients you're working with? Is it your coworkers? Is it the environment? You know, like what are the things that are important? Is it the pay, you know, like, are you willing to take a pay cut so you can have flexibility or is, is are all the things important, right? Cause that's, that's also acceptable too. You know, like you can have the best pay in the world, the best work life. You can have the best core. You can have the best thing. Right. But it just depends like up to you, like what, what the parameters are, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, taking the time to be self-reflective yes. and, and figuring out what that means to you, because only then can you see, all right, these are the things that are actually in my control. And before I jump ship, I might as well try to, you know, if it's a, if it's a pay thing or if it's a commute thing and you actually work for a clinic that has other sites, you know, there are so many creative ways that you can try to advocate for yourself to make things better in the job that you have now, as opposed Mm -hmm. to just going to that default decision of, you know, time to go. Yeah. And I, I love that, like creativity. And like, again, like I just hear this so much that I have to say it again. Like if you can't do it for yourself because you're, because it's terrifying or cause you just like have like a hidden, like unworthiness in the background, do it for your patients, right? Yeah. You cannot be of service if you are not there yourself. Right. So it's, it's actually for the greater good. It's actually for the patients. I mean, it's ultimately, it's the best for yourself too, but if you can't be there with that, then at least it's for the patients, you know? Yeah. It's almost like the topic of negotiation, 
right? And some of it is the traditional things that we talk about, but but some of it is, you know, thinking creatively of how to ask for the job to be how you want it to be. Yeah. You know, and and for some people that's going to be asking for more money or, you know, benefits changes or changes to the contract. For some people it might be, you know, they're working 5 days a week full time and they need a day off during the week. Like that might be the thing that they yes. need. They need a day off during the week to do their grocery shopping, have their appointments that need to happen. And so rather than saying, oh, well, I'm in a full-time job, I better go start looking for a less than full-time job. Like the first step is yeah. raising your hand, talking to your supervisor and saying, hey, this is not working for me. Can I go four days a week? Can yeah. I do four tens? Can I be 30 yes. hours? You yes. know, like you will never know if you yeah. if you don't, don't ask. Yeah. And like grant funding, like I know a lot of people who have applied for grants themselves to be able to pay their salaries for a four hour chunk of time every week to work on whatever project they're working on HIV or women's health or case management, you know, like there are so many ways to be creative. Yeah. And I think that there is this like all or nothing. And I think part of it is confidence. And part of it is also just not knowing, you know, like not having other NPs or other experienced NPs, other clinicians to talk to, you know? Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, Liz and I are here for you. <laughs> <laughs> I can talk for hours. I know. Can- I'm like shaking a little bit with like passion. <laughs> hopefully this, hopefully this has been helpful. We would really love to hear if this has been helpful. I hope that regardless of whether or not you've started your nurse practitioner job, you're listening to this episode and kind of thinking forward thinking. I know that it's, you know, we're nearing graduation time for the spring graduates and, you know, having this type of information will hopefully set you up to be successful as you find and vet and transition to your first job. And, um, you know, this is one of our favorite things to talk about. So there certainly will be more to come in this topic area. And in case you live under a rock, Liz, where can people find you and connect with you and learn from you? Um, all, uh, so realworldnp.com is uh, my website and weekly videos at the blog, realworldnp.com slash blog. But I'm also on Instagram at realworldnp and on Facebook at realworldnp. So come on over, come hang. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you, Liz. We'll chat again soon, I'm sure. Thank you so much. Bye. Well, that does it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and making it all the way to the end. If you found today's episode helpful, would you take a minute and give me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts? It will truly help other nurses find this show and know that it's worth listening to. For more information about this episode, as well as a place to submit your questions or suggestions for future episodes or guests, head to nursebecoming.com. I cannot wait to connect with you again soon. And until next time, remember, I am always rooting for you.